Good morning. Welcome to Solid Rock. We're happy to have you with us today. Christ is risen. Amen. Today, Resurrection Sunday, we are actually concluding our series, Journey to the Cross, as we rejoice in the fact that Christ has conquered sin, evil, and death through his own death and resurrection. In verse 9 of the text Austin just read, Paul said, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Amen. So today we are looking at the victory of the cross. And we'll do so by considering what theologians have referred to as the Christus Victor perspective of the cross. Christus Victor. This has become one of the most impactful perspectives for me personally, and not just because of Carmen's 1987 hit song, The Champion. I was hoping Kevin would include that in the music set today, but alas, we have one left. That's true. It's not too late. If we could also maybe put together a human video of sorts to that song. If you have no idea what I just said, don't ask questions. Just be thankful. If you heard human video and thought, oh, that must be a really fine art. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> Sorry, this is getting, getting carried away here. But it's, it's amazing what you will say under the anointing, I guess. Really getting Pentecostal. Oh, boy. Let's try to rein this in a little bit. Christ as the champion, as victorious, is a theme that we find over and over again in our scriptures. Christus victor, Christ the victorious one. And what better time to consider the victory of Christ than Resurrection Sunday? Now before we get deep into this language, I, I think we need to consider what that language of Christ the victorious one implies. If Christ has, in fact, won a decisive victory through his death and resurrection, there must have been a subjugation of some sort. Somebody or something must have been in bondage or trapped in some sense and in need of victory. And this is actually a theme we find at the core of the biblical narrative, the bondage of God's good creation. We probably see this most, most poignantly in the story of the Exodus where the people of God are physically in bondage, enslaved in the empire of Egypt. But it's an idea that continues to develop from that point where we find that it's not just Israel in bondage in Egypt, but all of humanity. Remember, several weeks ago, we discussed Paul's language in Romans chapter 3, where he suggested that sin is not just these isolated, immoral actions we participate in, but sin is a power at work in our world that we are under. That's the language Paul uses in Romans 3, a power we are under. Maybe you remember that story that's told in Matthew, or excuse me, in John chapter 8, where Jesus is teaching and says to the group, look, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
And the folks he's speaking to, they say, well, wait a second, hold on. We are the children of Abraham. We aren't in bondage to anybody. We have no need for this freedom you speak of. But Jesus responds to them in verse 34, saying, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This idea of bondage. A slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. But again, if we are set free, we must have been trapped in some sense. Now, I personally have never been in a situation where I felt genuinely trapped held against my will, unable to escape. Unless, of course, you would count an eight-hour shift at a coffee shop I worked at where they forced me to wear a green apron. I won't mention the name of the coffee shop, but in that case, I have felt trapped very much so. Um, you, you know those escape rooms? I've always thought that they would be a little more interesting if you weren't able to escape in the allotted time if you were actually stuck for good in the room. Now that I say it out loud, it sounds a little Black Mirror-ish, so that's probably a terrible idea. The idea we're considering today is that in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, we discover that not only are we in need of atonement or in need of forgiveness because of our sin, but we are also in need of deliverance. Deliverance from the slavery and oppression under sin. And Christ is victorious in this battle. Christ achieves our deliverance in this battle. Now, anytime we see this militaristic or warfare language in our Bible, we must use caution in how we understand and apply that language. I think throughout history, even very recent history, Maybe nations or even other groups waving the Christian banner have co-opted the battle imagery from our scriptures to imply that God is on our side in whatever personal or national conflict we happen to have at that moment. And if God is, in fact, on our side, we can do whatever we have to do to defeat that enemy, and we do it with God's blessing. Now, we can pluck a few verses from the New Testament and reach that conclusion, and maybe it would even seem that it's not only acceptable, but pleasing to God. We are, after all, more than conquerors. We are Christ's ambassadors, as the song says, marching as to war. And so Christ's victory is our victory. That is true in a sense, but not in that way, when we speak of the victory that Christ wins through his death and resurrection, there is this caveat. This is not an actual physical battle taking place in this realm. However, throughout our scriptures, there is this imagery of a battle that is taking place on a cosmic scale in another realm between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the forces of evil at work in our world. Paul describes this unseen battle that we continue to participate in this way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. He's talking about putting on the whole armor. Again, not physical armor, but the armor of God. In verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle 
against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, this language of a cosmic battle is obviously bringing up a worldview in the first century world that is very different than our own. But it is language that we find throughout our scriptures, and I think it's important that we don't simply write that off as primitive spirituality. We, we can just dismiss that because, well, this idea of a cosmic battle can't be brought into a lab and tested or proven in any sense. But our scriptures teach that the world that we are born into, the world that Christ also enters as a baby in the town of Bethlehem, the world is not perfect. We understand that to be true. But our scriptures also teach that the world isn't even neutral. There are powers and principalities at work, Paul says. There are these two dominions or two kingdoms at work in this world, and they will inevitably come into conflict at some point because they are fundamentally set against one another. The kingdom of God, which is expressed in Jesus Christ, is fundamentally opposed to the powers of evil at work in this world. And so the question then becomes for us, what is going to happen when these meet. And we see this play out in dramatic fashion in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, what we have been exploring over the last month and a half. There is a conflict between the powers and principalities of this world and Jesus. And when the two meet, the conflict erupts. So the convergence of spiritual forces together with evil human systems put Jesus to death. And that is the end result of the conflict, or so it seems. It seems like the evil systems, the empire, the Roman Empire in this case, the forces of sin and evil, it seems as though they have won victory in the cross. But of course, we are gathered today precisely because the cross isn't the end of the story. And so we continue reading in Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. We'll continue this chapter next week, but we read Matthew's account of the resurrection. Verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week... Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. 
Next week we will see what happens in Galilee. But we read in this part of the chapter some of those cosmic, dramatic details even in this story. There was a great earthquake. An angel descends and camps out on the stone that was rolled away. I mean, I can't think of many scenes more dramatic than the one Matthew describes here. You come here today seeking Jesus, the angel says, because everybody knows he was crucified and placed in this tomb, but your search is in vain because he's not here. He is risen. Amen. In this incredible event, Christ is not only personally conquering death, for himself after his own crucifixion and not only personally conquering the powers and principalities that sought to destroy his life through the crucifixion, but this event of resurrection also points us to the reality that is available for all. And that is that in in, in Christ, God is destroying the powers of sin and freeing us from the trap of evil and death. Christ is victorious over all. The central event in the Old Testament narrative, I think, helps us understand a little bit about what is taking place in the cross and resurrection of Christ. When Christ overcomes death and darkness. Historically, The Exodus story has been a critical part of the Easter vigil. Now for some that may seem like an odd choice because what does the Exodus of God's people out of Egypt, what does that have to do with the cross and resurrection? But there is perhaps no more appropriate picture of what is accomplished on the cross than this event from history when God's people are delivered from their physical bondage in Egypt. This is the Paschal mystery, the mystery of the Passover, which for Jews, this is a time to commemorate God's mighty hand that brought them out of Egypt. The Lord's power, which rescued them from death as the angel passes over the houses of the Israelites. God was delivering them from the clutches of slavery. Now, as we think of the Exodus story in light of what we are celebrating this morning, it really is quite fascinating. The events of the passion, the death and resurrection of Jesus are all taking place historically in the context of the Passover celebration when Jews were remembering God's deliverance from bondage. How appropriate is that celebration, considering what we have thought about through this series? The idea that sin is not just these actions we participate, but something we are under. And sin is universal and inescapable. We can't do anything in our own strength to conquer for ourselves. To come out of the grip of sin and evil. We can't achieve that victory through our own moral achievement or through our political progress. There is this bondage that creation is under. 
The Anglican theologian Stephen Sykes put it this way, speaking of the idea of slavery throughout Scripture also used as a metaphor. He said, slavery is a metaphor for the consequence of sin. Those who are in bondage need to be freed. We are enslaved by Satan, which covers all the bases, systemic evil as well as individual sin and error. And we are in need of freedom. As followers of Jesus, we believe that the death and resurrection of Christ bring us up out of our Egypt. The death and resurrection of Christ bring us up out of our slavery, out of our death. Just like God did for his people when they were burdened under the heavy hand of Egypt. And we see in the Exodus story, he intervenes and offers the people salvation. And in Jesus Christ, God is fully and finally intervening, offering salvation to all of humankind, to all of creation. The Lutheran theologian Robert Jensen, I I think Austin has shared this idea before, but I, I just love it. He said, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead having before raised Israel from Egypt. There is a connection between what takes place in that pivotal moment in the history of God's people in Egypt and what is happening in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is who God is. God is intent on delivering creation from all that would harm or destroy us. And sin certainly does that. But in Jesus Christ, this battle is won in decisive fashion. Christ is the victorious one. This is what we read in our scripture reading this morning. Romans chapter 6. In verse 6, Paul said, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then down in verse 9, Paul said, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So we've read Matthew's account of the resurrection. We've considered the connection between that event in history and the history, that pivotal moment in Israel's history coming up out of Egypt Let's consider briefly what Paul has to say about this event in Colossians chapter 2. One of the arguments Paul makes in this chapter is that the resurrected Christ, the one who suffered and was killed on our behalf, he reigns supreme. Yes, he was murdered in scandalous fashion, but he has triumphed over the grave and he is now the Lord of the church, but not only the church, he is Lord of the entire cosmos. Verse 9, Paul says that in the man, Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So this God-man, Jesus Christ, is raised to life, and when we are united to Christ, we are raised with him. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith 
in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In his resurrection, what we celebrate with joy this morning, his resurrection is the confirmation of this new reality of life that we have been opened up to. We go on in verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In the cross, the consequences of our sin are being nailed to the cross. And when we are united with Christ, he makes us alive, makes us new. The old has passed away. Something new is dawning. So something objective is happening in us in the death and resurrection of Jesus where we have the possibility of abundant life. But it's not just what happens in us individually. Paul suggests that there is also something cosmic happening in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In his resurrection, the entire universe is changed. Throughout this series, our journey to the cross, we have talked at length about the issue of human sin. And we have emphasized this not to increase a sense of guilt, not to lead to a sense of despair, but rather as a reminder that we are helpless in and of ourselves to overcome or progress beyond the powers of sin and death. But what we are powerless to do, Jesus does. What we are helpless to overcome, Jesus reigns in victory. Paul says he triumphs over these powers. He triumphs over them and puts them to shame. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, lives a perfect life, we as humanity put the author of life to death. But in the resurrection, Christ emphatically reveals the horror of our sin and triumphs over it. Christ, Christ is the victorious one. And that victory is absolutely clear in the resurrection. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'd actually invite you to stand. We're going to move into a time of celebrating around the table of our Lord. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is talking about the resurrection of the dead, in verse 17 he says, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, what does he say? Your faith is futile. Our faith, the Christian faith, hinges on this event in history, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection, our faith is futile, and gathering in this room is pointless. He goes on to say in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep 
For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Amen. Today we rejoice. Christ has died. We confess this mystery. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Christ has conquered the grave. Christ is victorious over sin, evil, and death, and he is raising us up out of our bondage, raising us up out of our Egypt, giving us the possibility of new life. Amen. We're going to join and celebrate around the table the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for you. We invite you to celebrate with us. If you're visiting or new, we invite you to this celebratory meal as we gather around the table of our Lord. We'll make two lines down the center aisle. There will be somebody here to offer you the elements, and the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Amen. The body and blood of Christ, which gives us new life in the resurrection. By way of invitation, I'd like to say a prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your life. We rejoice in the victory you have won. Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death, and open to us the gate of everlasting life. Grant that we, who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection, may by your life-giving Spirit be delivered from sin and raised from death through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Would you join us as we celebrate around the Lord's table today?